Hello, folks. We're down the line once again from Boston tonight with political author, analyst, and historian Dr. James D. Boyce. I'm Michael L. Roberts. This is the American Chronicle. It's Monday, May the 4th be with you, 2020. And with thanks as ever for your support for this series, we continue tonight to ride the waves of air on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor FM, and across the digital podsphere. Tonight, we find ourselves analysing another tumultuous week in American politics, with stories surrounding anti-lockdown protests, armed hold-ups of state buildings, accusations of sexual assault on the part of Joe Biden, and the role, if any, of Hillary Clinton in this year's presidential race, all once again under the good doctor's political microscope. I began, as ever then, by asking about the situation on the ground in Boston. Marty Walsh, the mayor of Boston, says that the figures are not plateauing, but rather climbing. And I see from your social media uh, output that uh, there are orders to wear masks in place or coming into place. What's the, uh, what's the situation on the ground in Boston? And do you see yourself being shoulder to shoulder with anyone at a Red Sox game anytime soon? Well, as you said, uh, the mayor has introduced as of Tuesday, I believe it is, a, an order which basically says if you are going out and you can't maintain social distancing, then you are going to be required to wear a mask. Uh, this follows on from a, an order which was introduced uh, two weeks ago now, I believe, uh, in neighbouring Somerville, which also said that anybody going out had to wear a mask. So there was a degree to which this was anticipated. There was some feeling that perhaps the mayor might have started to ease your ability to go out and about and to start opening up premises in conjunction with an order to wear a mask, i.e. to give and take at the same time, to say, yes, we're going to start opening things up very slightly, uh, but we're going to wear, ask you to wear a mask going out. Um, clearly, that hasn't quite happened yet. Uh, there is, I think, a growing sense across the nation that the country is reaching a point where People have been locked down and in place now for getting on for two months. And there appears to be a growing sense of resentment against both federal and state governments, as well as a growing uh, desire, I think, by individuals who to date have been obeying the law and staying in place effectively to think, you know what, this is getting ridiculous. The weather's getting nice here. We're now in the first week of May. I'm sitting here in Boston. It's a beautiful summer's day here. And uh, people are starting, I think, to head back outdoors. Um, the children have been off for a long time. We are, I think, reaching a point where the law, is, the, the, not the law, the requirements to stay in place are going to start being uh, ignored, I think, on a growing basis. This isn't helped, of course, by the president and some of the things that he's been saying. Uh, but we, we will be fascinated mm. to see what starts to happen as we start to see states, uh, particularly in the south and in the central areas of the country, begin to reopen. Uh, the extent to which there will be growing pressure upon those states, such as Massachusetts, for example, 
who are trying to hold the line and keep people uh, contained within their own their own residences. You mentioned uh, that which Trump has been saying they're not necessarily helping the deal. Uh, as I understand it, no state has actually met the uh, two-week uh, decline in cases uh, uh, prerequisite uh, in order to bring about easing. Uh, yet that is what uh, the federal guidelines state. So to what extent are those federal guidelines just being ignored by individual states? Uh, and to what extent are they being poorly communicated and or hidden by the federal government? Well, yeah, as you said, you know, the idea is that what is required is a two-week uh, downturn in these figures, and that hasn't happened anywhere as far as I'm aware. Uh, we're starting to see perhaps signs uh, that this might be slowing down, but certainly uh, not going into any sense of remission. The challenge you've got, though, is that just last night, for example, the president said, oh, you know, things are going to be fine, and uh, he certainly seems to be throwing his lot in with those armed protesters in places like Michigan, uh, who have been uh, uh, bringing state governments into severe uh, chaos, quite frankly. Uh, the sight of armed militia members standing in state houses uh, with semi-automatic weapons is, is quite, a, uh, quite a sight, I can assure you. And when, when they appear to have the support of the president, uh, that really puts uh, what might be thought as undue pressure, I think, upon federal upon uh, state governments across across the country so um the, the challenge is i think that there is a growing sense uh, amongst a growing number of people here uh that when you consider the the mortality rates on a state-by-state -state basis and when you consider say here for example in massachusetts 50 percent of the mortality rate is within care homes uh, and then if you start to look at how the groupings break down of the other 50%, um, I think many people are arriving at the conclusion that the actual mortality rate is relatively low. Um, and quote, unquote, what's all the fuss about? I'm not in a care home. I'm not in a high risk population. Um, if I go out, I'll be careful, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so you're starting to see a, a breakdown in the, in the requirements to stay at home, I think. And the challenge you're gonna have, I think, is what happens when people start to enforce that? Uh, we've seen, for example, park rangers uh, in the last 24 hours being assaulted and pushed into ponds. Uh, we're starting to see pushback against individuals who try to um, enforce social distancing. So the challenge, I think, is as Americans attempt to defy regulations and move back into open spaces, there is going to be, I think, increasing conflict, not only between um, state and federal forces, but amongst individuals themselves, uh, as they start to almost enforce uh, social distancing, people will or will not be wearing masks, how will people who are wearing masks react to people who aren't wearing masks in this uh, in this era? So um, the, the risk, I think, of a breakdown in what might be thought of as law and order and civil society appears to be increasing at this point. Mm. That uh, that breakdown that you described there, and also you you touched upon uh, the the Michigan situation. I I've been desperate to ask you in terms of. Uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who you've mentioned as a potential Biden uh, vice president candidate down the line, 
uh, th those incredible images of of, uh, of what appeared in, in in sort of headline terms as a, an armed storming of a state building. Could you give us uh, your your analysis of the narrative, please? So one of the the fascinating things about the United States is the degree to which the states are anything but united. Uh, there are a, a great many uh, divergences with regard to laws from state to state. And one of the bizarre things uh, that many people might find is that apparently uh, it's quite legal to carry uh, a weapon into the state house in Michigan as long as you don't have, quote, ill intent. Um, which I, I, um, I thought quite bizarre, quite frankly. So those images of people carrying semi-automatic weapons into the state house in Michigan are acting quite within the law, uh, as long as they say, that's all right, I have no real intent towards the governor. Uh, why you would carry an automatic weapon uh, if you have no ill intent is, is frankly beyond me. Uh, but it's important to stress uh, that they are not, quote unquote, breaking any laws in what they're doing. They may look intimidating. <laughs> they might scare the bejeebas out of likes of you and I, quite frankly. And from an external point of view, both as someone sitting here in Massachusetts and to anybody sitting outside the United States, they might look at this and think, well, this is just a breakdown of law and order. What on earth is going on? Under Michigan law, by all accounts, they are applying by the law. Um, I should point out, however, that I just finished watching Waco, which is an interesting documentary, sorry, miniseries on Netflix um, about the Branch Davidian sects, which some might remember uh, ended in a fiery climax in the spring of 1993. And it was pointed out then that uh, even though many of the actions of David Koresh and his members were seen to be abhorrent by the United States, under Texan law, many of his actions were actually quite legal. Uh, so that gives you some indication about how extreme some state law can be here in the United States. Um, within Michigan itself, very clearly, uh, the governor has come under great pressure. But what's also being revealed, I think, is some of the very bizarre and troubling, uh, and, and one would hope only ignorant, if not necessarily um, evil um, mindset of some of the individuals who are out protesting. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, there are signs which have been in the, in the protests, which mm. have been written in German. And the signage which has been held up, which makes reference to the idea that, you know, uh, hard work uh, is good for the soul, etc., etc., is the exact wording which was engraved on the gates of Auschwitz. Uh, you, know, you cannot make this stuff up, quite frankly. Um, all at the same time that they are portraying the governor as a Nazi. Um, again, the, um, the dynamics of this, the visuals of this are, are quite astonishing. But so too, I think, the, the, the utter levels of ignorance by those people who are on the streets. Hmm. Moving now to the, uh, the Trump briefings. Obviously, uh, Last last week, we found ourselves in the midst of uh, Breachgate and otherwise. Uh, this time around, the headlines seemed to suggest that uh, Trump was no longer going to do them, and then they were back on. Uh, and then I think I saw shortly before we came on today that uh, CNN and other channels were not no longer going to broadcast the briefings uh, were Trump to return, or indeed had he already done so. Uh, your analysis thereof, please. 
Yeah, so there's a real roller coaster situation here with regard to the president and his press briefings. As we've discussed before, there is, I believe, a sense that one of the main reasons he's engaging in them is this attempt to continue his compact with his core group of supporters. He can't go out into the country to have large 25,000 seat arena rallies. So he has popped onto the idea of having a daily press briefing, uh, some of which are related up to 90 minutes. Uh, he believes, I think, that you know, the, the more he talks, the more he can convey his uh, strength to his leaders effectively. Of course, I think what's happened is there's been a growing realization uh, amongst some at the White House and certainly amongst the Republican Party that, quite frankly, the more Donald Trump talks, the more trouble he gets into. We saw last week, as, as you suggested there, uh, a pushback against what he suggested about how one could start using disinfectant, uh, issues about getting light inside people's bodies. I mean, this is almost, you know, bizarre world, quite frankly. Uh, what we've seen this week is um, an attempt, I think, by the White House to try to get a, gr a grasp upon the situation. The new press secretary has made her first appearance at the podium in the press briefing room, uh, interestingly uh, stating quite categorically that she will not lie to the journalists in the room. Uh, it quite, it's quite something, I think, when a press secretary has to make her debut by saying that she'll be honest with the press. Um, either you take from that what you will, either implicit or explicit in that statement is the, the recognition that perhaps her predecessors have been less than honest, or perhaps, shall we say, other people speaking at that podium have been less than honest. Draw from that what mm -hmm. you will. Um, so that's been an interesting development. Also, uh, the White House has prevented uh, Dr. Fauci from uh, testifying before a, a committee led by the House of Representatives uh, in coming days uh, as being not, uh, not worth his time, but has allowed him to testify before a Senate committee. Uh, in case anybody thinks, well, what's the difference? I, I would remind everybody that the House of Representatives is controlled by the Democrats and therefore that committee will be chaired by Democrats and the Senate is currently controlled by the mm. Republicans and therefore that uh, that committee would be chaired by Republicans uh, in the majority. So you would clearly have a very, very different reception for Dr. Fauci were he to appear uh, before the Senate committee as opposed to the House committee. So you are starting to see this roller coaster approach uh, the media have long debated whether they should continue to broadcast Donald Trump's appearances, because as we discussed last week, there was a sense that four years ago, Donald Trump was very astute in making use of free airtime by phoning in and appearing at will, it would appear, on several television shows. This time round, it appears that that free media time has been gotten by using the White House podium to deliver a nightly TV address to his supporters and by extension, all Americans. And this of course is particularly disadvantageous to the likes of Joe Biden, uh, who is struggling to get airtime. And I think that the networks have finally cottoned onto the idea that this really uh, is going beyond uh, merely passing information on to Americans for their own well-being, and has a, probably moved into the realm of what we would think of in the, in the UK as a party political broadcast. Mm. I saw uh, Chuck Schumer suggest that he'd love to get uh, Fauci 
uh, into that situation without Donald Trump uh, hanging over his shoulder, as it were. Do you think Fauci would feel free to <laughs> talk in that sense, or would Donald Trump for, always be uh, overshadowing him and influencing whatever communications he would uh, impart? Well, I think it's interesting with regard to uh, Anthony Fauci in terms of what he has said. He has, I think, on many occasions been uh, quite candid, certainly more so than many people who work in this administration. Uh, this, of course, has led to great questions about how long he can possibly survive in his, in his job for. Uh, he's, I think, uh, made references to himself. The president has, has addressed this, suggesting he has no intention of firing him. Uh, for, those of you, for those of you who caught uh, the, uh, the Saturday Night Live sketch last week with Brad Pitt playing the good doctor. He himself alluded at the top of that uh, that, of course, he thinks he's going to get fired. Um, it would, I think, be a remarkable um, situation for Donald Trump to fire this individual. He has, of course, I think, captured the public imagination uh, with regard to his statements and appearances. It's not every day that some uh, otherwise uh, anonymous individual working with the federal government gets played by Brad Pitt. That's an extent to which I think he has entered the public consciousness. Of course, I say it would be quite remarkable for Donald Trump to do something. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners are screaming at this uh, broadcast going, of course, it's incredible. He does the incredible all the time and gets away with it. And they'd be quite right. I think that uh, he will uh, stay in his post. Um, and um, hey, it's only six months until the presidential election. He might well be in his position longer than Donald Trump. Indeed, six months and uh, leading me nicely on, as you always do with a perfect segue into uh, my thoughts, uh, my questions rather on uh, regarding the campaign situation. And of course, it feels necessary first to turn to Joe Biden uh, and the Tara Reid scenario and to ask within the context of uh, uh, Mika Brzezinski's interview and otherwise your your analysis on the extent to which this is uh, this moment for Biden causes irreparable damage or the extent to which in the age of Trump it's uh, completely survivable. You know, it's it's kind of difficult to know where to begin with this. Um, you know, we live in an era of Me Too and the Democratic Party in particular has been adamant that all women who make a claim uh, deserve to be heard, um, potentially believed, um, in some cases almost on face value. Um, that is a lot easier to adhere to when those claims are being made against Republican politicians. Um, to people like Harvey Weinstein, i.e. not to themselves. And now we face a, a very difficult situation uh, where the presumptive Democratic candidate himself is being accused of, I think, what would be accurately defined as sexual assault. Um, now, what do we know about this situation? It was alleged to have taken place in, in the uh, early 1990s. Um, that obviously is a long, long time ago. Um, there is obviously um, a lot has taken place between now and then. Joe Biden has um, been the vice president of the United States uh, for eight of those years. Um, to become vice president, it requires FBI vetting, political vetting, um, everybody involved in that process, including people like uh, David Axelrod, for example, as well as senior members of the Biden team who were involved in 
the 2008 process have said categorically, you know what, we looked for stuff like this. There was no evidence of it. If there had been, Barack Obama would never have chosen it. Um, just taking the politics out of this, you, you know, if you know anything about Barack Obama, I think you'd probably have to agree with that. This isn't someone who I think would have accepted that mm, kind of mm. what Donald Trump would call locker room behavior for someone who was going to be his vice president. Um, there is no evidence, I think, to suggest that that would have been tolerated by Obama, certainly not by his wife uh, or anybody on the vetting team. So the question is, is was this known about at the time or was it, was it not? Um, if you accept that it wasn't, then where, where is this now coming from? Um, the, the woman at the heart of this, Tara Reid, had originally suggested, I believe, that she'd made um, a report of, uh, of, of sexual assault uh, to the correct authorities. The vice president has said, well, look, you know, if you've made, an, if you've made a, um, a complaint, that complaint has to be somewhere within the archives I'm happy for the National Archives to release any of my office reports, documentation, so that if it is there, we can find it, we can get to the bottom of this, et cetera, et cetera. He's denied categorically um, that this occurred quite emphatically. There doesn't appear to be any wriggle room, I don't believe, in his statement. Um, he's not relying, for example, as Bill, did, Bill Clinton did, upon a very... Um, narrow definition of sexual relations. If you remember when Bill Clinton famously denied uh, his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, he didn't suggest that he hadn't had an affair with her, that he hadn't engaged in activity of X, Y, and Z. Bill Clinton had been presented with a very narrowly defined definition of sexual relations by um, special prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And that was why he mm -hmm. could deny so emphatically that situation. Now, Joe Biden, to his credit, is not hiding behind some sort of obtuse legal language. He has actually denied it emphatically. So that's what that means, therefore, is if it were to emerge that there was sort of proof of this or it could be demonstrated that, uh, that this incident had occurred, Joe Biden is a very precarious position, having denied it so emphatically. He would be caught in the, the most blatant of lies. And as American politics has demonstrated many, many times, you can survive an, an incident as long as you admit it and uh, apologize for it. What Americans won't necessarily forgive is an outright lie. Um, and that, I think, is a lesson which, if, if Joe Biden hasn't learned it after more than three decades in public life, then quite frankly, he has no right running for the presidency. He also faces a threat um, beyond the uh, the moral issue and the Me Too movement issue, he faces threats, I think, with regard to this, both from the left and the right. He faces a threat from the left, from those supporters of Bernie Sanders, who never wanted him to be candidate in the first place, who believed that um, their candidate, Bernie Sanders, should and could indeed have, have become the, the nominee uh, had the rest of the apparatus not conspired against him. So the, the, the far left are sort of pushing this narrative that Tara Reid should be believed and listened to, et cetera, et cetera, because they have their own vested interests in this. And then, of course, the Republicans um, who are gearing up to run against Biden uh, in the, the autumn election are looking at this and think, well, this is great. Um, it, it completely removes the opportunity now for, the, for any 
Democrat to come after our candidate on similar grounds because we can just turn around and say, you ready? You want to open up these kind of worms? Um, you know, so, you know, one of the weak points of Donald Trump's political candidacy all along has been his um, rather problematic relationship with, with women and what many would see as his predatory approach. Um, now, if that can be taken off the table, uh, and don't forget, you know, the extent to which that was ever successful in terms of an approach by the Democrats has to be doubted when you consider how many millions of American women voted for Donald Trump. Yes. Uh, but yeah. if you can at least remove that uh, from the table going into November because of the obvious fear of pushback from Trump against Biden, then that does, I think, uh, make the White House's uh, attempts to get reelected just a little easier. I can't resist the uh, opportunity to uh, pick up on the Clinton element here, seeing as I have, as ever, one of the uh, <laughs> leading leading experts on the Clintons on the line, as it were. Uh, I think I also noticed in the Hill just before we came on uh, mention that uh, Hillary Clinton might be uh, waiting in the wings as Biden's uh, woman VP pick to pick up the pieces should he crumble in the mix. Uh, your thoughts on that and your thoughts on uh, what the Clintons are doing or not doing in general in terms of supporting this Democrat campaign? Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton is sort of out there, um, as she has been, I think, for a while, as um, a sort of roving individual um clearly at the, this point joe biden is the presumptive democratic party nominee for president um how that is going to quite play out uh, logistically over the coming weeks and months is is difficult to say uh we have seen uh primaries which are meant to be held being cancelled outright uh by uh, state legislatures on the simple basis that well, there's, there's no point holding them because there's only one person left in this now. It's Joe Biden, therefore. Why are we going to spend money and time and energy and risk public health by having a, a primary in our state when all these people can do is vote for Joe Biden anyway? So on that basis, um, his candidacy appears assured. Um, now, if, if it were to crumble, as you suggest, um, if under, let's say, for example, uh, some evidence emerged of Tara Reid's um, claim that would force uh, the, the vice president to withdraw from the nomination. And then we'd be in a, a really bizarre environment. Um, in any other year, you'd think, well, okay, fair enough, there will be a, an, a convention. And if there isn't a nominee at that point, then there will be a series of ballots and the delegates there will have an opportunity to select a candidate uh, even though they've not gone through necessarily the, the primary season. Um, that was quite normal activity many decades ago. And under those circumstances, you could say, well, presumably Hillary Clinton would throw a hat in the ring and say, well, you know, remember me? I won the popular vote four years ago. Um, I, I only lost uh, the, pop, you know, the, the Electoral College by 70,000 so votes across three states. I don't know. I mean, who knows, quite frankly, at this point, there doesn't appear to be much doubt that Biden will be the nominee. Uh, the allegations against him appear to have what might be thought of as a, a rather fluid process to them. Um, certain people suggesting that uh, Miss Reid is suggesting one thing and then suggesting something else. So um, I, I think if we if we accept that Biden will be the nominee, 
the, the question next to be asked about Hillary is, would she be the vice presidential mm. candidate? Mm. If, if you ask the question, who is the most qualified person to be vice president in the United States? Um, it's a pretty short list, I think, and you'd have to put her on it, um, along with someone like John Kerry. Now, Biden has said he's going to choose a woman to be vice president. Hillary Clinton has come out in recent days and emphatically endorsed him for the, the presidency um, in full knowledge of the, of the allegations against him, I should point out. Um, no senior female Democrat has so far come out and renounced his candidacy. Um, it has been accepted by all the leading um, women in the Democratic Party, including both Hillary and Nancy Pelosi. I think, if anything, though, with regards to the vice presidency, um, one of the unspoken ideas here is that Biden will only serve one term. He's 77, if I'm not mistaken. Um, go figure what he would be there for if he were to win and be old enough to run for re-election. That would be, what, 81. Um, is, is 81 too old to be president? Well, possibly. Is 77 too old to be president? Well, possibly. Um, Hillary Clinton isn't much younger herself, I should point out. Um, you know, there comes a point where you have to have um, a viable continuity of government. Uh, you know, presidents die in office. If you look back through the history of this country, not just at the hands of an assassin, but health uh, and age uh, take play a heavy toll upon any American president. If you look at all presidents, if you see how they age in office, even JFK, who of course was America's youngest elected president, if you look at him in 1960 when he wins the election and shortly before he's killed, just a thousand days later on, he has aged notably. George W. Bush, the same, a rather sprightly, remarkably young looking president in retrospect when he is elected in 2000 and eight years on, uh, he has aged considerably. So if you factor that aging process into someone who was at 77 or would already therefore be America's oldest um, elected president. Do you want to be putting alongside him as the uh, the safety net, if you will, a woman who um, many Republicans believe had health issues of her own in 2016, um, and who isn't much younger than the than the current Vice President Joe Biden, than Vice President Biden himself? Um, so that might well discount that. You've got to ask whether she would want it. Um, there, was, um, there was a perception that she wouldn't have accepted the vice presidency in the past because, and this is the joke, she's already done that uh, because she was effective vice president when uh, her husband was president. Hmm. There was a joke going around uh, when Vice President Gore was in office and uh, uh, the joke went, uh, Vice President Gore was asked, how do you enjoy the vice presidency? And Gore's response is, well, she seems to like it. So that gives you some idea, perhaps, about the, the nature of power in the Clinton presidency. Until next Monday, then, this has been the American Chronicle. I'm Michael L. Roberts. Follow Dr. James D. Boyes on the links below. Music, once again, as always, by the great Chris Warner. 
Tune in Thursday for the Voicing the World Late Night Noisecast episode 11. Good luck and ever onward to you all.